page 582. Before we begin the reading, I'd like to offer a prayer of illumination. Our Heavenly Father, we just ask that you bless this congregation and bless this community with the reading of your word. We ask that you open our hearts up that we might uh, have clean hands, pure hearts, not speak falsely and not speak deceitfully. And through that, that we might be blessed by you. We ask these things in thy holy name. Amen. The King of Glory, a Psalm of David, chapter 24, verse 1. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul what is false and does not swear deceitfully. He will receive blessings from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of God of Jacob. Thank you, Bill. I love those opening two verses of Psalm 24. Let's look at that again. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. In Psalm 24, King David reminds us that God has created everything. And so all that we have and all that we are is ultimately a gift from God. And so, of course, we respond to God's generosity by coming to him in worship. In fact, the the people in ancient times, uh, in ancient Jerusalem, they would climb to the top of Mount Zion to to worship God. But notice what King David says about those who who come to worship God in verses 3 to 4. He says, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord And who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus, in one of his Beatitudes, says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. What does it mean to have a pure heart exactly? Well, pure gold is nothing but gold. Pure silver is nothing but silver. So to have a pure heart is to have a heart that's focused on on what is good and right, to have a heart focused on God and God alone. Yes, someone who has a pure heart is is focused on living out the Shema, the most important commandment in all the Bible. Jesus tells us in Matthew 20, the most important commandment is the Shema. We find it in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 to 5. Listen to these words. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. If we want to have a pure heart, we've got to focus on loving God with all that we are. But you know, as Christians in America, it can be hard to love God with all of our heart and all of our mind and and all of our soul, can it? I mean, we live in this information age with so many different distractions, whether you're driving your car and listening to the radio or simply watching television or or browsing the internet. We are constantly being told what to buy and what to wear, that if we will drink this beverage, then we'll be cool, or if we wear these clothes, then people will think we're needed. If we drive this car, then we'll be the envy of the neighbors. Yes, we're told that if we buy these things, then we'll find happiness. And 
I've got to be honest with you. Sometimes when we buy these things, it does make you happy. I remember the first time I bought a new car. Uh, I'm embarrassed to show you what it was because it was a long time ago, 1997. They don't even make this car anymore, but there it is, Saturn SL2. I even had a spoiler put on the back, which now I think is cheesy. But at the time, I just thought that was cool, and and it had great gas mileage, you know. Saturn was kind of a new uh, vehicle company out of General Motors, and and it had a little performance switch that if you hit it, you could go even faster. And I lived in Dallas, and it was important to be able to get on the freeways fast, and so I used to drive this car. I remember every time I'd get into it, at least for that first month, it had that new car smell. Oh, I love that smell. I invite my friends to come and ride with me, and, and it was great. And for the first couple of years, I loved it. And then I had my first major repair. Uh, I didn't like it so much. In fact, just this last Friday, my Camry, I have a 2002 Camry, um, and it wouldn't start. And so then I had to take this car, and I, I was planning on trading in at the end of the year anyway. And uh, anyway, I, I took it in, the alternator, I had to get a new alternator, new battery. You know, $500 later, I was like, oh. And then they gave me a long list of everything else that was needed. And I was like, oh, my gosh, I don't want that. <laughs> and I'm thinking, uh, this, these repairs are costing me almost as much as the car is worth. And so I started to get this point that this car is not making me happy anymore. You ever been there? You buy something and it makes you happy, but it doesn't seem to last, does it? No, our consumer happiness can often be very short-term. There are so many things in our culture that can distract us from loving God with a a pure heart. Our personal ambitions for professional success or prestige can distract us from loving God with all of our heart. Our worries about the future can distract us from loving God and trusting in God with all of our heart. Our consumerist culture with its empty promises about happiness can distract us from loving God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. If you've noticed as we've been going through the story, the grand narrative of the Bible, the sin that upsets God more than any other in the Old Testament is the sin of idolatry. Anytime the people of Israel would love anything more than God and they would worship anything, whether it was a a graven image or gold or whatever it was, whenever they would worship anything more than God, God became most upset with the people of God. He allows the Assyrian army to, to destroy the northern kingdom of Israel first because of their idolatry. And then eventually he allows the Babylonian army to defeat the southern kingdom of Israel because of their idolatry. And so King David tells us quite clearly in our psalm today that God desires people who will worship him, who worship him with clean hands and a pure heart. But how can we have a a pure heart. How can someone have a pure heart if they, if they don't know the good news of God's love that we find in Jesus Christ? That was the great challenge, the great burden facing that first century church. If you remember two weeks ago, we talked about how the risen Jesus, right before he ascends to heaven, he, he commissions his disciples. He said, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you, and lo, I will be with you to the very end of the age. And then last week, Kim did a great job talking about that first Pentecost Sunday and how the Holy Spirit came upon the disciples with tongues of fire and they began to preach the good news of Jesus in different languages so people who were in Jerusalem from all over the known world could hear the gospel, the good news of God's love. We're told that that first Pentecost Sunday, 3,000 people came to faith in Christ. And we're told at the end of the Acts chapter 2 that, that the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. The first century church knew that the only way someone can love God with a pure heart is if they have a relationship with Jesus. If if they've been reconciled to Jesus, then they will know what it means to love God well. So they wanted to get that news out. And the earliest church was really growing and thriving the first few days in Jerusalem. 
But then it began to face persecution. In fact, one of the greatest persecutors of the earliest church was a man named Saul. He was a Pharisee, an expert in the Mosaic law. Saul was was persecuting that first century church. In fact, Saul traveled all the way from Jerusalem to, to Damascus to go and persecute Christians. But on the way, God grabbed a hold of Saul's heart. You see, God blinded Saul and And Jesus, from the right hand of God the Father, spoke to Saul, and he encountered the the risen Jesus through this vision, and and eventually Saul humbled himself, and he became a Christian, a follower of Christ, and he he began to preach the gospel in the synagogues, and and eventually he went with a man named Barnabas, and they took a, a missionary trip to the southern Galatia, the southern part of Galatia, and they began to plant churches in places like Iconium and Lystra and Derbe, and And it was amazing, and and as Paul would preach first in the synagogues, he would often face rejection, so he began to preach to Gentiles, non-Jews, and and when he would do that, he would use his Roman name, Paul. He became the author of almost half the New Testament, as Paul was this great missionary who wanted people to know God so they might worship God with a pure heart. They wanted them to know Jesus so they could worship God with a pure heart. And Paul decides to go on a second missionary journey. And on this second missionary journey, God eventually calls Paul to go to Europe for the first time to preach the gospel. And the first, Paul's first convert on the continent of Europe is a most unlikely character. But as we look at her life today, we will see that she gives us a model of what it means to love God with a pure heart. So that we might see how we can love God with a pure heart, I would invite you to turn in your pew Bibles to the book of Acts, chapter 16, Acts Chapter 16, beginning at verse 6, it may be found on page 1176 of your pew Bible, Acts chapter 16, beginning at verse 6. But before I read God's word, let's call upon his Holy Spirit again to guide us in the reading and preaching of his holy word. Please join me as you pray. Holy Spirit, we thank you that you inspired Luke to put pen to paper so that we might have the story of the earliest church, so that we might see how you were able to bring people to Christ and, and that we might see what it meant to, to love you with a pure heart. God, I pray that as we read your word this morning, you might give us eyes to see and ears to hear and a heart that might be opened and transformed at the reading and the preaching of your holy word. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your holy sight. Through your son's precious name we pray and all God's people said, amen. Acts chapter 16, beginning at verse 6. Listen to the word of the Lord. And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. When they'd come up to Messiah, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Messiah, they went down to Troas. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. When Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace and the following day to Neapolis and from there to Philippi which is the leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer and we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia 
from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple, purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized and her household as well, she urged us, saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. Here ends the reading of God's word as the prophet Isaiah tells us the grass withers and the flower fades. But the word of our Lord stands forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. In our text this morning, Luke, who wrote Acts, describes Philippi in verse 12 as a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. Now, Philippi actually wasn't the largest city in Macedonia. It wasn't even the capital. Thessalonica was. But but Paul says it's a leading city. It was a a Roman colony. And and actually, Philippi is named after uh, Philip II of Macedon, who was the father of Alexander the Great. And and Philippi actually became famous in 42 BC when the imperial armies of Antony and Octavian defeated the Republican generals of Brutus and Cassius there. And so eventually, Octa- uh, uh, of, of course, eventually, uh, Oct- Antony became Saint August- or, uh, Augustine, uh, Caesar Augustus. And as a Roman colony with Roman soldiers who spoke Latin, Philippi was like a miniature Rome. It, in fact, 80% of the inscriptions that are found in Philippi are all in Latin versus Antioch that only has 20% in Latin. So it was a very Latin, very Roman cultured city. And actually, it's believed that many doctors were trained in Philippi. And so many biblical scholars think that Luke, and as a part of his training as a doctor, as a physician, may have spent some time in Philippi. So he was a little partial to the city. That's why he says it's a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. But notice that while Paul and Luke, Silas and Timothy are are in Philippi for what he says are some days in verse 12. They're there for some days, several days. They're unable to find a Jewish synagogue in this leading city of Philippi. Did you know that there had to be 10 male Jews to have a synagogue in the first century? As big as the city was, there just weren't that many Jews. At least there weren't any male Jews. You could have 100 Jewish women, but you had to have at least 10 men 10 male Jews to have a synagogue. And as they searched the city, they couldn't find a synagogue. And if you read all of Acts, you'll see that Paul's pattern is he would first go to the synagogue, he would go to the Jews, and he would preach through the Old Testament and help them see how Jesus is a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy so that they might come to faith in Christ. But there was no synagogue to go to. So they did the next best thing. We read that on the Sabbath, he went outside to the gate, to the riverside, where we supposed there was a place of prayer We sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. Now, the riverside that they went to is west of the city. It's the Gangites River. I think we have a picture of it. It's a nice place for a prayer meeting, don't you think? And they get there, and and there's some women, so they begin to to preach the gospel. And and on this Saturday, Paul began to tell them the good news of God's love, that even though that we are sinners and, and our sin separates us from God, God loves us too much to abandon us in our sin. And so he sent his one and only son here to this earth to be born as a baby in a lowly manger. And and this little baby boy from Nazareth began to grow up among us and teach us and heal us. And ultimately, he died on a cross as the perfect sacrifice for our sins so that we could be reconciled to God. And and then on the third day, he rose again, conquering sin and death on our behalf, proving that that he was who he said he was. And now he's commissioned all of us to go and, and make disciples. In fact, it's really interesting in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we we actually have what Paul would preach, the gospel, the good news that Paul preached to every church that he ever started. We find in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 1, Paul writes these words. Now I would remind you, brothers, 
of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and which you stand and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And then he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preached, and so you believed. Notice that when Paul would preach the gospel, he would share his own testimony. He would say, look, I'm the least of the apostles. I used to persecute the church, and yet God and his amazing grace and his amazing love made himself known to me so that I might come to faith, so that I also might be saved. And as Paul is preaching this good news about God's amazing love to these women on a Sabbath near the Gangites River, we were told in verse 14, one who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. Isn't that interesting? The Lord opened her heart. Of all the people listening, and I'm sure he tried to preach the gospel in Philippi and different places, but it was a woman named Lydia, and she was from Thyatira. She wasn't even a Macedonian. And if you'll remember, what led them to leave Troas, he had traveled to southern Galatia, he had completed the original mission of of his second trip, which was to visit the churches he had started. He's in Troas. He could have gone home to Antioch. That would have been fine. But he has a vision of a Macedonian man. But it's not a man that God wants Paul to preach the gospel to first. He wants it to be a woman named Lydia that he might open her heart, that she might come to faith and be saved. Many scholars believe that Lydia was probably a widow or divorced because in verse 15 we read, and after she was baptized and her household as well, she urged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay, and she prevailed upon us. Notice that it's her household, it's not her husband's household. And in the first century, it would have always been the husband's household. The man was the head of the household. And so if it was the household that was going to be baptized, if she had a husband, it would have been the husband's household that would have been baptized that day. But it wasn't, because she didn't have a husband. Now, we don't exactly know why Lydia doesn't have a husband. Most scholars believe that when it talks about a household, it probably did include children and most likely slaves that were baptized with Lydia. But one thing we do know, that in that household there was no husband because he would have been mentioned, but he wasn't. And while, yes, it's true that Lydia had been quite successful in dealing purple and and she was a woman of, of, uh, of means, the truth is life probably hadn't turned out the way Lydia had hoped it would. She was single, a single mom in the first century. Life probably hadn't turned out the way she wanted it to. She, living as a woman in the first century, would rather be married than single. She would rather have a husband who could help her raise her children, but she had none. She was alone. And yet God sees this single woman, this woman from Thyatira, from Asia Minor, a city in Asia Minor, and he opens her heart that she might come to faith so that she might believe 
and ultimately be saved. Notice Lydia's response to the gospel that we read just a moment ago in verse 15. And after she was baptized in her household as well, she urged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. Lydia is so overwhelmed by the good news of God's love that she says, no, please come to my house. She, she exercises her spiritual gift of hospitality in gratitude for God's love for us that he would give us his son. She says, here, let me be generous back. You four men, come and stay in my home. I would, I would love for you to, to start your church in my house. That's amazing generosity, right? I mean, that's, you know, a woman's home, right? I mean, here, open it up. Come on in. Let's have a church here in my house. You know, it's interesting as we've been going through the, the story, <clears throat> the grand narrative of Scripture, we see that time and time again, God will use women to help do the work of his kingdom. If you remember the period of the judges, there was a woman named Deborah. She was the foremost authority in what God had to say to God's people. And God wanted to speak through Deborah so that all the men might hear. If you remember, there was Esther, and she was the queen, and ultimately God uses Esther to help ultimately save the people of Israel from certain destruction. And now in Philippi, this leading city where there aren't enough Jewish men, God finds this woman Lydia and he opens her heart so that she might begin that first century church. And Philippi, if you read all of Paul's letters, Paul probably had more affinity and love for the church in Philippi than any other church. For we read in Philippians chapter four, Paul writes to the church in Philippi, after being imprisoned and in Rome, they sent him a gift. And so it's a thank you letter of sorts. And In Philippians chapter four, we read this, verse 15. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Lydia's generosity by inviting these men to come and stay in her home set the tone for the church in Philippi to be a very generous church. God chose this woman from Asia Minor to be the one to start the church in Philippi. You know, one of the things I love about our new denomination, uh, uh, ECO, a covenant order of evangelical Presbyterians, is that it has egalitarian ministry as one of its core values. This is what it says, egalitarian ministry. We believe in unleashing the ministry gifts of women, men, and every ethnic group. Women, men, and every ethnic group. All of us have been given different spiritual gifts, different abilities, different talents, and God wants to use those gifts, both men and women from every ethnic group, to use those gifts for the sake of his kingdom. And so next Sunday, we're going to invite everyone who's a part of our church to to make a commitment of their time, talents, and treasures. If you haven't already received this Celebrate magazine, you can pick one up in the Great Hall, uh, and you can learn about what all that God has been doing in and through our church in this last year. And inside you'll find a a commitment card, an opportunity for you to make a commitment, not just of of resources, of money, but also of time and and, and treasures and talents. And how might you use those gifts that God has given you? And I don't know if you've noticed, but as we have become a more generous church, God has blessed us. 
Paul writes to the church in Philippi, and my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Six years ago, our, our church was in a bit of a tight spot financially, but through your giving, we were able to, to meet our goals. And, and when I attended that first finance meeting, it was my first time to go, I, I just looked at the budget, and as a former missions pastor from a church in Dallas, I said, boy, you know, we ought to give more to missions. We're only giving 6.5%. Couldn't find that in the Bible. And I, so I said, well, what about 10 And the finance committee, to their credit and their faith, they said, let's do it. And so they wrote in $40,000 more than what was planned to give to missions in response to God's word. And some of us are wondering, in 2011, are we going to make the budget? I mean, we've just increased the budget by $40,000. Are we going to make the budget? We just came out of a lean year in 2010. Are we going to make the budget? And we did. Revenue exceeded expenses. And it has every year since. As we continue to give just a little more. The next year, in 2012, we said, what if we gave one more? And 23, what if we gave just one more? We've been giving 12% the last couple of years. And, and well, we've got a commitment and a vision to see what if we gave 15%. And you may have noticed this last summer, we had a couple of special fundraisers for, for great ministry opportunities. One to Ireland and, of course, the downtown women's centers. And those are great ministry programs and great opportunities for our church to get involved both globally and locally and help make a difference. But rather than having so many special fundraisers, what if we just write that in the budget? Let's just plan on being generous. Because as we read the New Testament, we can see that well, the tithing's really the starting point for generosity. It's not the destination. The earliest church gave well above a tithe. And 15% seems too high. I know we can do it. The folks across the street do it. We're as good as them, right? And so I'm excited to see what God might do. And it's been great to see just in the last few years how as we've increased our missions budget, we've been able to go from 12 missionaries to 24 missionaries that we now sponsor. We've been able to take trips not just to Belize, but also to Costa Rica and also to Honduras and to Mexico, and Bolivia, and Ireland. It's been great to see how through our giving and seeking to be a generous church, God has blessed that and allowed us to grow in so many wonderful ways. Lydia was so grateful for the gospel of grace that her only response was that to be generous. Saying, please come into my home. Let me sponsor you all. And she continued, along with the church in Philippi, continued to sponsor Paul, as we can see from Philippians, continued to support Paul financially in the work of the kingdom because they knew they had been blessed to be a blessing. How has God blessed you? What are your time and talents and treasures that you might use for the work of his kingdom through our church? I would encourage you to spend the next week praying about that. And if we want to worship God with a pure heart, the best way we can do that is by giving back to God. Generosity and giving help us resist the temptation for greed and coveting. As we give back to God out of gratitude for all that God has given to us, Jesus says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. As we give to the work of God's kingdom, our heart and our mind focus on God, and that becomes our priority. Not the things of this world, but rather the things of God's kingdom. And I'm really excited because here in a moment we're going to have a congregational meeting where uh, we've got Will Esler and Brady Clark talking about an opportunity for us to help transform, permanently transform the, the community of San Jacinto. One of our congregants has been very generous to donate a, a lot of land there in San Jacinto to our church. And we're going to give it to a square mile, assuming you vote that way. Uh, session has voted to do that as well as properties. But an opportunity so they might have a farm, uh, an organic farm there in the neighborhood of San Jacinto. So they might have fresh fruits and vegetables things that those who are in poverty often can't get. How will you respond to God's grace? What is God calling you to give? May we seek to be like Lydia, who in gratitude for God's grace gave out of a pure heart 
And so she was able to honor God with all that God has given to her. Let's pray. Gracious and loving God, we give you thanks for the great gift of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. We thank you, Lord, you have been so generous to us. So may we follow the example of Lydia and give back to you out of gratitude for what you've given to us. Give of our time and our talents and our treasures so that you might be glorified in this generosity. Thank you, Lord, for Brady and Will and continue to guide them and lead them as as we seek to help transform not just our church but also the community of San Jacinto, one of the neediest communities within all of Amarillo. We thank you, Lord, for your love and we thank you for the work that you're doing in and through our church. May we seek to bring glory and honor to you in all that we say and all that we do and all that we give. In your son's name we pray and all God's people said,